you know, one of these days, I'm going to be tasked to look at one of these movies, and it's not going to be some colossal nightmare cluster of doom from behind the scenes. That seems to be our trend for this year. At least all the movies we've covered so far have had interesting production cycles. This is another one of those films that well, is a clear Star Wars film. Let's check this out. Now, what I'm about to list you, I'm going to just refer to my notes consistently because this, which is over half the page, by the way, is just the behind-the-scenes notes. That's above average for me. I, I uh, shorthand a lot. That's a ton of notes. And this is probably, I'd say, about 25% of all the crap that went into the making of this film. But I wanted to discuss at least some of it, because there's some interesting things going on here. So first of all, they brought the one in... Uh, one of the people who was tasked for this was James Cameron. You might be thinking, well, yeah, he's a big... Not at this point. This was before Terminator had actually come out. Now, I know what you're thinking. Aliens is after Terminator. That's not when the production of the film started. Terminator was his first real success. Uh, granted, he actually knew how to do some good things in Piranha 2, and arguably anybody with a brain could look at that and see the potential, which several people did. But in this case, you know, they, they looked at him and like, yeah, we'll go ahead and bring him in. He's He was not a big name, and everyone was kind of taking a risk on him. Now, let's rewind a second here. So Fox insisted that this would that, that any sequel to Alien would be a complete bomb. This is also partially there's some validity to this because horror films were kind of on their way out. If you pay attention, genres of films kind of have peaks and troughs, and then other genres kind of become the dominant film for a particular thing. We've been in the superhero peak for a while, and it's kind of on its way out now. Uh, we had uh, like the sci-fi thriller thing was a peak for a while there. Uh, before that, we had the... Uh, I'm not sure what I would call that era, to be completely honest. Let's skip over that one. Before that, we had the action hero stuff, right? That's kind of the late 80s, early 90s. And before that, it was mostly horror movies, which were kind of the peaks. Now, there's some exceptions to these, obviously. But my point is that horror movies were on their way out. This is the relevant thing. Horror movies were no longer peaking, which meant that they were expecting that there wouldn't be big returns on this one. Which is a valid statement. Then they insisted that Alien didn't make money, which is a goddamn lie. So here's the thing. Um, Alien 1 made plenty of money, but Hollywood does something and has been doing something since uh, the 20s, really. But it has been doing something for a long time, which uh, I can't, honestly can't even believe is legal. It's called Hollywood accounting. Yes, it has its own phrase. It's a particular brand of completely legal rejiggering of the costs and benefits to declare whether something is actually profitable or not, which is relevant for virtue of things like taxes, fines, bills, etc. Um, this is total nonsense, and anybody who has any awareness of it all knows it's total nonsense. It's, it's the lie everyone accepts kind of a deal. Thanks to Hollywood accounting, Alien, the first film, which sold very well, was a financial flop. Now, it's probably worth noting that uh, Cameron... So, they pulled in Cameron early. There's some debate as to who pulled him early for this. But they tapped him, and Cameron was just entranced with the idea. I want you to remember that for later. He put together a 42-page treatise on it in three days. This was back in 83. And they were like... Eh. Yeah, I mean, there's some potential here, but uh, we'll figure it out. They also decided 
to uh, bring in the same general crew, which is a British-focused crew. That'll come up later. And they were like, well, I mean, maybe we should shop this around with this thing. This is another, this is a good time to mention that Fox was not doing well at this point financially or in general. Uh, Fox Studios had, uh, so Mark Rich, who at the time was basically the head of Fox Studios, fled to Switzerland as a fugitive for tax evasion and other white collar crimes. That was in, uh, 84, I believe. Now, no, I'm wrong. That was in 83, it looks like. It was, it was right around when this was happening is the relevant point. Because Murdoch bought in, uh, in 84, it looks like. I'm sorry, I have a lot of notes here. Yeah, it looks like, uh, well, okay, that, it, that's why it took so long. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, who's probably the name you associate with Fox, bought in right about at this point in time. However, at this point in time, they'd only had three actual large-scale successes uh, in the last several, several years. There was Star Wars back in 77, which was a smash hit, and is the only reason the Fox Studios continued to exist until this point. Then they had a pretty good one with Alien, despite their creative accounting. It was a big hit. And then they had a big hit with Romancing the Stone, which actually came out in 84. But that's it. Three large-scale financial successes. Okay. Now, why is this significant? Because Fox Studios put out probably close to about a hundred-ish films in that period of time. Because that's how Hollywood operated, and in many ways still does operate. Films are cranked out regularly. I, I often call Hollywood incestuous, at least from a purely financial perspective, uh, but also from a working perspective, I suppose. Because so much of what they do is to cycle money through their own little private little environment, for lack of a better way to put it. They effectively have their own mostly segregate uh, bubble of the economy. Now, there is money that goes out, obviously, because those people pay for things that are not related to the movies. And there is money that comes in because people pay ticket sales and buy videos and stream videos and all that fun stuff. But the percentage, the largest percentage of that money just kind of cycles within itself as people pay this these group to pay these group to the APs group, and it just kind of cycles through them. Now, I've argued for a long time that this is not financially feasible, and history so far has continued to prove me right for the better part of the last three decades. But the reason I'm bringing all this up is that part of that cycle is dependent on a system where a huge amount of movies get made regularly, but nobody cares about them. They, they Sometimes they make their budget back. Most of the time they don't. What actually keeps the studios afloat are the big hits. So if you were to graph it out, and each one of these spokes is a specific movie, the majority of the funding is down here. And then you have a big one hit here, and a big hit here, and a big hit here, and those three hits keep the studio afloat. Make sense? This is actually one of the reasons why studios tend to chase big hits, and one of the reasons why even when a film is actually financially successful, a studio might consider it not, because it wasn't enough, or they didn't have enough other big hits to keep the, the cycle going, the net overall going. Sense, Mike? So with only three big hits over... Uh, what is that? Uh, 12 years? No, that's wrong. Nine years. Nine years. Not great. And Fox was doing very, very badly. It was re generally considered reasonable that Rupert was going to go ahead and either merge under someone else, sell out to someone else, or just straight up, you know, asset rip the studio and then walk away with whatever he gets out of it. Because Fox was not doing great. Keep all that in mind. <sighs> Meanwhile... So let's rewind time a little bit. Terminator. James Cameron is working on Terminator. 
And nobody thinks it's going to be a hit. Nobody thinks Terminator is going to turn into anything, including Cameron himself. Nobody had faith in that film. Remember that point for later, too. So he was actually working on Aliens while working on Terminator. He was spending most of his spare time touching up the script and thinking about ideas and monsters and just different concepts he wanted to do. And before I give too much credit to Cameron, I should also give a huge amount of credit to... Uh, I wrote down her full name. There's a Gail Ann Hurd, who was his... Uh, so they flirted, then girlfriend, then married, then divorced... It's like a four-year marriage or something like that. Whatever you want to call that. His romantic interest, but also, and this is the important part, his collaborator. This woman was someone who was considered to be a reasonably talented producer and someone who was at least, I'd say, 40% responsible for most of what was coming out of Cameron's office at this point in history. If you've never heard of her, that doesn't surprise me too much. Most of her film list is nothing particularly exceptional. However, she is a major producer for The Walking Dead, the, the TV show. And that's more likely where you've heard of her. She's actually, she kind of left movies and shifted to television and has stayed there pretty much since The Walking Dead got going. So, you know, <laughs> good on her. But, um, so Cameron is like, okay, work, 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 work. And he gets this thing going and he gets a better thing going and he's like, hey. And he wanted to do a more character-focused piece on this one. And she wanted to try and focus on adding more human elements to an otherwise uh, horror film. And both of them agreed on one big point. This should not be a horror film. That's also important. Because Aliens isn't a horror film. Not really. Oh, it has horrifying elements, absolutely. But look at the format of Alien, for example. Alien, pure horror or... Well, that's a hard sentence to say. <laughs> Try to say that five times fast. It, it is pure, undiluted, untainted horror, right? Probably one of the best horror films ever made. And that's coming from me, someone who doesn't like horror films. Aliens is an alloy. This is taking and distilling several things and blending them together to make something arguably better. I don't mean better than Alien. I mean better than their composite parts. This is an action film, which is a character human interest piece, which has horrifying elements. Is that rain? That is rain. Oh, that sucks. One moment, please. Come on, update. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, <clears throat> they both agreed they needed to do something other than simply a horror film. Now, <laughs> this begins the chain of unlikely events, because Cameron's like, okay... I'm on board, and this is, you know, this is Miss Heard. She's going to be working with me, and they're like, no. He's like, what? She's like, they're like, no. No, she's not even a real producer. She's only here because she's sleeping with you. I'm not making that up. That was actually an accusation, although that wasn't leveled by the executive. That was leveled by the crew. So she had to have her professional contacts contact the studio and be like, yeah, no, I, I actually am a producer. And there was some back and forth, and Cameron threatened to walk without her. So they're like, okay, fine, whatever. So, then they decided to budget the film really low. It's worth noting the actual budget for this film was $18.5 which is actually kind of average, but on the low side for this period in history. It was supposed to be substantially lower than that. For those of you aware of the making of this, uh, bleh, the makings of and the behind the scenes of this film, you may know that they cut corners constantly and had to pull tons of tricks to make this film with the incredibly limited budget they have. And they wanted to have it even more limited. Cameron and Heard said no and walked. 
That's twice now if you're paying attention. They were like, okay, okay, fine. We'll give you the budget, but we need to ha- we need to start working on casting. Now we need someone for the main lead. And Cameron's like, well, it's, it's Weaver. We need Sigourney Weaver back. No, we can't have her back. It won't work. So then Cameron and her walked. <laughs> Three times now. Uh, so finally, they're like, okay, fine. We acquiesce. Come on board. Do whatever. Do what you gotta do. But you, if you think the problems were over at this point, let's talk about the crew. So the crew was a British crew. Now, I don't mean anything nationalist about that, but they have, uh, they literally have different procedures and rules and regs with regards to working crews than they had over in the States. It's worth noting Cameron's actually Canadian, but let's ignore that for the moment. So Cameron was frustrated with them and hated it, hated every moment of it. They were frustrated with him and her and hated every moment of working with them. So in both directions, there were issues. In fact, at one point, the union threatened to walk. I say the union. It's actually more like three unions. But they, they threatened to walk. <laughs> it's four threats to walk now. And they had to sit down and negotiate. Herd was actually one of the big uh, olive branches here. She had to sit down and negotiate and say, all right, look, let's, let's, let's hash this out. We, we all want this movie to be made, right? And that was the key point that got Cameron back involved. Now, I'm actually not a big James Cameron fan, to be completely honest with you. Nothing against him, but I don't really have anything for him. He's made, by my count, three movies that I actually enjoy, counting this one. And a whole lot of movies that I don't really care for. Sorry about the rain, it just started pouring rain. I apologize, it's really loud. Nothing I can do about it. Unless... No, I probably shouldn't stop the weather for thousands of people, just so I can record more quietly. So... Given the circumstances, they, they, he really wanted to make this film. And that is the only point of respect I will give this particular man. Uh, actually, that's not true. There's two points of respect I will give Cameron. One is that he wanted to make this film. He, all of his friends, professionally and personally, said, don't do this. This is going to wreck your career. And several people, including Sigourney Weaver, accused him and the studio in general of just doing this as a cash grab. That's not true at all. Cameron legitimately was interested and passionate about this project and threw himself into it and wanted to make this film. I understand that feeling very much. I'm sure any of you creative types out there understand that as well. Similarly, the second point of respect I have for James Cameron is that he's one of those all-points-of-interest uh, all directors. What I mean by that is some directors will get up on camera and they'll direct the actors and they'll direct the scenes. And some point, sometimes they'll you know, give a little bit of you know, inference or whatever. And then that's kind of it. And then you have directors like him or, I can't remember his name, the Lord of the Rings guy, who get involved in every step of the process. They're there for the setup. They're there for the setting, uh, excuse me, the set. They're there for the lighting. They're there for the camera usage and the blocking. They're there for the prop design. They're there for the animatronics. They're there for talking to the actors and working through them. They're there for the casting. They're there for the post and the dailies and the editing and and the marketing campaign. And I tend to prefer the latter type of director, in my opinion and personal perspective. So, that's what actually convinced him. He really did want to make this film. So he's like, okay, fine, fine. I'll put up with it. Let's, let's, just, let's just keep each other at arm's reach. <laughs> We're just going to do whatever. All the issues are gone, right? Wrong. Next problem, James Horner. Now, James Horner is, you, you probably know James Horner, but um, he uh, he was having some issues at this point in time because he was already working on some other projects, Star Trek, excuse me, and 
was called in, and I I wasn't able to find out the exact reason why. But for whatever reason, uh, he was called in at the point where he probably should have been called in a couple weeks differently. Earlier, more likely. But even that probably wouldn't have fixed it because Cameron was still editing the film. They weren't done yet. So he didn't have footage to make his music against. So Horner had to make his music in what is probably about a fourth of the total time he otherwise would have. In fact, they actually reused some music from Alien in this film, from Jerry Goldsmith's uh, track, just because they didn't have time to make new music for it. Okay, all the problems done, right? Wrong! See, here's the next problem. While they were... This, this is actually an earlier problem, but I just wanted to share this here. Uh, this is funny, though. This one right here. So, they got in... Uh, they wanted to get Geiger, H.R. Geiger, back and have him do the designs and props and, and all that fun stuff. Thanks to what I can only refer to as legal chicanery, he was like, uh, I can't, and they couldn't negotiate with him. So he couldn't be tapped legally under contract for this film. Damn. That's uh, okay. We'll get this other dude. What's your name? Stan Winston? Ah, uh, sure. You'll do. You may have heard me gush about Stan Winston in the last film that we just covered, but this was actually kind of a big career move for him as well. In fact, his work on this film was so well regarded that it is specifically what got him pulled in for Jurassic Park as well. Anyways, are we done? Is that all of the issues? I think I think that's all of the problems. 18.5 million budget, 183.3 million. Practically, people will disagree on this, obviously, because this is a matter of opinion and we don't have access to all the facts, because why would studios keep accurate financial records? But many people, and I agree with this, uh, film geek, as a film geek and as an economics geek, agree that this is the film that is why Fox Studios is still going. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is up to you, but... It's pretty likely that uh, 20th Century Fox would have gone, psh, psh, if not for this big hit. Because they had nothing else in the pipeline at this point. And remember, they'd already been muscled out of Star Wars, the rest of the Star Wars, so they didn't have that to draw, to draw from. And the special editions wouldn't happen for several more years, and that would have been too late. Now, obviously Fox uh, did well for itself after this, but again, that's kind of thanks to this massive infusion. It's almost like that economic model isn't really a feasible one long term. I mean, it's feasible as long as you get your big hits. <laughs> they also did some fun casting with this one. Paul Reiser was an inspired choice for Burke, a comedian who was known for being a comedian at the time, who was just kind of lighthearted and silly and happy and perfectly encapsulated the kind of character he needed to be. They also got Lance Henriksen for Bishop, which was also an inspired choice. Because Lance Henriksen, if you've seen him in anything else, he plays the grizzled, cynical person who's usually a villain and terror. And he was told to portray himself pretty creepily through most of the film. So that was kind of neat. But all of this leads to the film itself. So we see Burke very early. He is effectively the second character, at least the second main character we interact with. He is shown as sympathetic, understanding, and a total liar. I will admit, I didn't really notice most of the stuff until my second or third time playing through, or playing, watching through. But Burke um, lies constantly, and he does so so quietly and so subtly that it, it's no wonder that I didn't notice at first. There are so many times when he clearly has information that he has memorized, that he has you know bur burned into his brain, 
And he's like, no, I, I don't really know what's going on, and I'm not 100% sure or familiar with it, and blah, 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 blah. And then he recites the facts that he wasn't sure about perfectly from memory. This this actually happens in a deleted scene as well. There's also multiple times where he portrays himself as being on Ripley's team side, and I've, I've got your back on this, and blah, blah, blah. It's a really good job, but I want to give special praise to either Riser or Hurd or Cameron or whoever decided this. There's a little tick he does. He plays with his face just a little bit, almost every time he tells a major lie. If you watch back through the film, you can see it. It's, you know, he pokes at his eye or something, or scratches at his chin, or just kind of grabs his, grabs his jaw, you know, just something. Something is there to indicate that almost every single time. It's a cute little feature, and I like that. Um, so she's been in cryosleep for 57 years, and only by severe long shot, raise eyebrow, was she actually found. Her life is over, and that sucks, and she's having severe PTSD. Now, I want to mention something here. I'll be talking about pacing later. I actually mapped out the pacing of this film, because it's fascinating to look at. But we have the early chest-bursting scene. It doesn't actually happen. There's no blood and gore here. But we have an early chest-bursting scene at the eight-minute mark. And we see it only the once, but we see her jolt out of bed multiple times after this. Again, efficient storytelling. We kind of get the idea of the gist of the type of dreams she's having. And so we continue to see her as she wakes up. And we can infer what is going on in her head in the times. I don't want to speak too much about this. But I will have to say that, yeah. <laughs> I have woken up screaming myself before. And gone and ran into the corner of the room. And just braced myself there. And it usually takes, especially in the middle of the night... Took, took takes a good several minutes for the brain to start processing that that was just a dream. It's not actually happening. It is okay now. And of course, even when you get to that point, you don't believe it, right? Because you don't want to relax your guard, do you? Forgive me. I just have a great deal of sympathy for what Ripley's going through here, and unfortunately, I imagine several of you understand that as well. So... Company team. Um, there's some surprising consequences, which which make logical sense. Oh, by the way, that was at the eight-minute mark. That's important. Keep that in mind for later. Um, so she doesn't sound very convincing, does she, as she's trying to convince the company team of what happened? Oh, okay. One moment. Package was just delivered, and it's pouring rain out. So I'm going to go grab that. Don't worry. I'll edit this out in the future. So as I was saying... Anybody who's played Mass Effect can probably recognize several of the scenes where she's trying to convince the board of what's going on. She doesn't sound very convincing, does she? And, I mean, why would she? She's still suffering from massive post-traumatic stress and is barely holding it together, even in light of everything that's happening. And so she's just kind of ranting at corporate people who don't understand. Now, she's right, but you can see how, from an external perspective, it would seem like she's just whatever. So that's, you know, that's cute. What happens next is actually a time jump that they don't really showcase all that well. Because she has since found a job, a job, the only job that she can. And Burke comes back saying, hey, so we lost contact with the colony. In between that time jump is when Burke specifically sends out a message to them telling them to go look for the alien ship. Since... Well, he's familiar with what's going on now and wants to make a profit and he wants exclusivity rights. Sorry for giving that away, but we'll talk more about that later. Anyways, <clears throat> so 
So he then is like, well, shoot. It, it turns out that they found it and we've lost contact. This is also when we introduce uh, <laughs> our good friend, the lieutenant. Uh, actually, let's rewind. Well, no, let's talk about lieutenant. Because two thing, three things happen in short succession here. First thing is the young lieutenant is introduced. Now, that'll come up later, but it's interesting how the very first thing we see about him is that he's a little baby face. I don't mean that as an insult. As far as his visual appearance, I mean as, a, as an insult with regards to his obvious inexperience. The second thing we see is that she is having severe issues with this and decides to confront this head-on. I have in, in clear information on this point. But something that has been told me often is that when you have suffered something horrific, hiding from it, avoiding it, doesn't help. What tends to help is confronting it and normalizing it, getting it out there in the open, being willing to talk about it. And doing so kind of brings it down from being this electric wire in your brain you just can't touch. And every time you even think about touching it, just makes your entire... <laughs> makes your entire being want to just scream... And back away from it, right? But by normalizing it, it makes it okay. It's it's not a live wire. It's just it's just a fork. It's just another tool in the arsenal, and it's not really a big deal. There's no need to freak out about it, right? If it's not obvious, I'm still working on that one myself. Um, I don't know if that's true for everyone, because everyone has their own ways of coping and dealing with stuff. Usually I work. One of the things I used to like to do is I used to do dishes to steady me, something nice, simple, mundane, that I was good at. I'm very good at cleaning, and uh, so, you know, getting some cleaning done used to help me to cope. But she is going to confront this. Face it head on. We're going out there to kill them. We're going to kill them, right? And notice he grabs at his eye when he's like, yeah, no, we're totally going to do that. You have my word. So, third thing in this scene. What is the value of Ripley on this mission? What's funny is, both from the real purposes of the mission and the stated purpose of the mission, her value is the same. Knowledge. If you watched my Predator rumination, well, first of all, you're awesome. But second of all, if you haven't watched that rumination, please go watch it. I'm actually pretty pleased with how the last few uh, ruminations this year have come out. It's rare I say that about my own work. Anyways, I'm sure there's going to be people in comments being like, No, your ruminations suck. Please feel free to comment saying, No, your ruminations suck. You have, to, you have to get the tone across. I commented how one of the big turning points in Predator was when knowledge of their enemy was actually pulled into them. They understood how he worked, how he operated, and could work around it. It was the same team and the same general tactics, but with the ability to apply them properly, success was now possible. Even then, it was admittedly a long shot, but at least it was available. Before, even the crack team couldn't do much against something they didn't know much about. That leads us to... Here, Ripley knows about a xenomorph, knows what it is, and knows at least a little bit of how it operates, and therefore can prep them. Now you might think, well, why don't they just have her write up a whole list of things? Well, because, and I actually agree with this, the idea of her being on site as an advisor and consultant, so she can think of things that she might not otherwise think to put in a report, and having someone there who can say something about something, will get across the information better than a few lines in a document. To, to use a bad analogy for this, you can read a synopsis of an episode of television, or you can watch the show, the actual specific episode. Now, you will probably get most of the gist of that from reading the synopsis, but you will not get all the nuanced details and oom-feeling goods and bads 
unless you actually watch it. So I'm with that idea. So then... <laughs> this is actually probably one of the most amusing budget scenes. So they filmed the scenes of them giving, getting out of the chambers and them coalescing last. It was the last stuff they filmed, filmed at the very end of the film. Now, this is something that filmmakers tend to do frequently, is film things completely out of order. Usually, there's practical, functional reasons for doing it. For example, in The Hobbit 1, the first film they... The first film. First scene they filmed in the entire series was uh, Bilbo and Smeagol's confrontation at the beginning, because those sets were ready. They only needed the two actors ready to go, and they, they only needed some of the set people and some of the camera people and some of the lighting people, so they were able to get working on that first. Logic, right? One thing filmmakers tend to do, though, uh, the most infamous example, this is probably Groundhog Day, is filmmakers will sit and film things out of order in order to get across a certain vibe or feel from their actors. In this case, Cameron and Hud, uh, Hurd, excuse me, Cameron and Hurd really wanted, I was thinking Hudson because I'm an idiot, Cameron and Hurd really wanted there to be a visible and noticeable chemistry and camaraderie between the cast. So they waited until they'd already filmed all the rest of the stuff and the cast had, you know, relaxed and gotten used to each other before filming the scenes where they're supposed to have this camaraderie. There was a downside, though. They got to this point and their budget was going dry. And remember, this is after they did the Queen scenes, which were extremely expensive and had even those have, like, a lot of freeze-frame moments where you can see the, the wires, uh, literally, because... <laughs> They were so low on budget, and they're like, we 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 got to eject these scenes. We we can't do some of this stuff. But then with very careful usage of camera work and trickery with regards to mirrors and other fun stuff like that, they were able to actually extend the look of the bays, extend how many of them, they actually, the cryopods they had, and make it look like they had more than they did. An interesting point of this is uh, you can see aspects of this if you're paying careful attention because, you know, there's obvious mirroring going on and the patterning of it and all that fun stuff. Anyways, clever stuff, clever stuff. So they get up, and Mark Rolston is in this. I don't know why, but I completely forgot that he was in this. What's funny is this is not too far off from when he would be in the two things I remember him most for, Star Trek The Next Generation and Babylon 5. I mean, obviously this is before that, but still. What's doubly funny is he usually plays kind of a creepy psycho killer person. And in here he plays uh, Drake, someone who was press-ganged into the military as his punishment for being a murderer. Huh. Actually, Vasquez is in here for the same reason. If you ever wonder why Drake and Vasquez get along so well, it's because both of them are in here as punishment. They're, uh, there's a term for that, I can't think of it, but they, they've been pushed in. And as a direct consequence, they... Oh, she was pushed in for murder, too, by the way. And so the two kind of naturally bonded, and the two kind of got along pretty well, and yada, yada. You, you get where that goes. A lot of little tiny stories back there, several of which Cameron encouraged his crew, that is to say his cast, to come up with their own stuff. If you ever wondered why they have their own little uh, slogans on the helmet or their own little uh, visual style things, it's because he actively flat out said, go ahead and think about your characters, think about your backstory, and just customize it a little bit. Help distinguish each of you. Just just a little bit from each other. It was a good move. Um, <clears throat> so then we have Bill Paxton. Now, <laughs> Paxton, what's interesting is Paxton's role was completely rewritten after he was cast to make him a little bit more of a comedic figure, someone who was supposed to add moments of levity to the film. A, a valid tactic for a fairly dark and serious film like this one. 
I was going to make a joke here about this is when Bill Paxton found out the terrible and dark secret about James Cameron, and that's why he's in every Cameron film after this. Uh, but then I realized, oh god, he was in Terminator, wasn't he? Which did come out before this. So back on Terminator, Bill Paxton. I don't know. <laughs> you know how it is. A lot of directors tend to get along very well with certain specific actors or actresses and tend to bring them back regularly. See Adam Sandler or Tim Burton or Steven Spielberg. There's plenty of examples of those. Anyways, Bill Paxton and James Cameron for some reason. Um, so Bishop is also shown to be an android pretty early on. And, of course, this leads to some consultation. And now we have Lance Hendrickson, who usually plays villains, who's playing an android after the first film. Yeah. And we also see the new lieutenant, who is again new. And there's some other like, nice little character stuff. Good, good little stuff. Good little stuff here. Let's talk about pacing really quick. Because most of the film around here, and for, for a good solid 30 minutes is nice and low tier with regards to pacing. But if you're paying attention pretty much from the moment that they, you know, they're like, Ripley, we've lost contact, up until, well, the... I mapped it out, like I said. I actually literally made a diagram here. Looks like up until the... the Yep. When they first meet Newt is nothing but a non-stop, slow, very slow, very gradual increase in overall tempo. Again, I'll talk more about the pacing specifically later. I just wanted to mention here, excuse me, because this is probably the biggest stretch of no real variation in overall tempo. It's just one nice, long, smooth incline. So Ripley takes charge for the first time. Are you finished? Now, not that I'm complaining. Maybe I'm just biased because I just watched Predator. Like, that was today from my perspective. But these feel more like Mercs than Core. This is funny because a gentleman whose name I'm going to look up here really quick, I did write his name down, um, Al Matthews, was actually a real-life sergeant in Vietnam and actually brought his real-life sergeant experience from Vietnam to this film, which probably explains why he is the one who feels the most military out of the entire group, because he is. <laughs> but most of these feel like just mercs. But then again, if you consider the backstories, most of this makes sense. Again, Vasquez and Drake are both convicts, who have been press-ganged. Hudson is in it for the money. This actually amuses me. And we'll kind of see more of that later. I'll talk more about that later. But, you know, we, we get a little bit of tidbits on how they interact. I'm not going to go past that because those three are arguably the big three. Other than newbie Gorman. Or Gorman? Gorman? It's Gorman, right? I wrote it down. Yep. And uh, Hicks, of course. Now, Hicks is portrayed as the most experienced of the group. And they do this in subtle ways. Ignoring the fact that he's just kind of whatever most of the time. When they're going down doing the drop, he actually falls asleep. Because this is just another drop for him. Contrast Lieutenant Gorman, who is freaking out over it visibly, because this is only his second live drop. This is also a little bit of backstory foreshadowing. This is a relatively small team, with relatively no backing, with a new lieutenant without all of the gear and personnel that they should have at their disposal. I mean, they brought one android and no drones. What? But of course, that all makes sense, because this isn't even being backed by the company. This is being backed by Burke personally, 
who, while he is a part of Special Division, nevertheless is someone who probably only has finite reach and resources, especially since he's trying to keep this under the radar so he could claim exclusive rights to this and get all the benefit, prestige, and of course, money from this operation. So it makes sense that they're kind of doing this on the cheap. I mentioned the lying thing. One of my favorite little tidbits is there's this bit where, you know, she's like, how many combat drops have you done? Two. And there's this brief thing where you can see Burke just kind of being, uh, and kind of sharing in the moment of, oh, what a, what a, what a loser, what a newbie, right? Except he hired the guy personally. He had to have known how inexperienced he was. Like I said, quiet little lies. In all seriousness, Paul Reiser sells the role. He really does. I'll get more into him later. So, then we see a scene where... I'm sorry, I, I keep talking about the drop. Rewind a second before the drop. They show off the power loader. If you'll forgive my indulgence, I like mechs. Not all mechs. I, I've actually discovered I'm rather picky about mechs. But mechs I like... I like, like a lot, like Battletech, oh yes, I, to this day, one of the things I want to do, no joke, is sit down with some physicists and theoretical engineers and and try to hash out a way to make a battle mech feasible in real life, to, to make it work via understanding of actual physics. What? It's something I want to do, I, I think that's so cool, and I think it all comes back to this film, no, really. I'm pretty sure, and I have a pretty good memory, that historically speaking, this was the first mech I had ever been exposed to in fiction. And obviously in real life as well, but you get the point. The power loader. Now, I'm not counting robots and stuff. That That is different. You know, we had data, which I think... No, data wouldn't predate this. Would The data would have been, like, right after this. Uh, we had Mega Man, which would have predated this barely. But, you know, I think this was the first honest-to-God's mech. I actually saw, and I was just like, oh, dude, dude, and it was so cool. I, please tell me I'm not alone in that. <laughs> Anywho, we also see foreshadowing, because she demonstrates that she is skilled in how to use these things, and it's a nice little bonding with the group method, which is important, because up until now, she's been shown both visually and emotionally as being completely separate and distant from the rest of the group. So they land the APC, a.k.a. an airplane towing tug. It even looks like one, but it's actually a really good look for that. It makes me wonder if that would make a good base for that kind of vehicle. Heavy sucker, but again, under certain circumstances, you know, like a juggernaut. And then we see the M41A pulse rifle. Probably one of the more well-known things to come out of this, uh, other than the big one, which I'll talk about much later. I decided to look into this because, you know, the M41A is, is iconic, and it's one of those things that you see in, a, in just about every alien's work after this. Apparently, it was made by mashing together an M1A1 Thompson, which they specifically got in because they needed the kind of shots to look a certain way for the thing, even though they're shooting blanks, and covering it with a Remington 870. But they still needed a little bit extra oomph because they had that the the slug thrower, not the slug thrower, sorry, the, the, the grenade launcher. So they brought in a Spaz-12 for that thing, and just kind of kit-bashed these guns together to make this model and covered it with certain things to hide the parts. It's funny, though, if you look at those guns, like if you pull pictures of the M1A1 and the Remington 870 and then the Spaz-12, you can see the M1, uh, M41A amongst those. It's just kind of cool, and I just wanted to gush about that really quick. Anybody who's a real gun geek, because I'm only a fake gun geek, could probably tell you a lot more about this. But it's super cool. 
uh, Vasquez and Drake are doing their thing, and Hudson's in this for... So Hudson's attitude, I, I was going to talk about it here, Hudson's attitude is a lot more understandable, because he is literally only in this for the money. In fact, he's in this for the lazy money. He is doing this because the military pays very well, and then once you finish your thing, you get a big old paycheck, and he was just going to invest the hell out of that, and then walk away and retire on it. He was going to get a bar, hire someone to run it, and just walk away and live off of it forever. Which says a lot about the personality, and kind of implies why he is the way he is. Why he is the one who is just kind of the, eh, whatever, amongst the group. By the way, the lieutenant is on the comms for this whole initial incursion. I was thinking about that. Now, forgive me for sharing a bit of wisdom that I actually read about in fiction much later. But there's an argument that in a combat scenario, someone who's in charge of multiple squads, a lieutenant, for example, probably shouldn't be on the front lines because they'll be the first one targeted. And if they go down, there goes the coordination and leadership of the squads, right? And yet, that conventional wisdom also has its own flaws, because if they're just doing it at a distance, they don't have the kind of on-the-site immediate reaction time, or the ability to immediately be like, aha, this is what we need to do here. So they don't have the response time, and they don't have the uh, situational awareness, let's call it that, that being on the front would actually afford. But of course, they're coordinating multiple squads, so they kind of have to be behind. It's this interesting little paradox. The lieutenant is just kind of screwed, Someone above them is fine, because they're supposed to be on the back. They're not really supposed to be in the front. But a lieutenant is right in that sweet spot of screw you. And so I found it amusing that Mr. Gorman decided to be on the comms for this one. And I don't really begrudge him that. But this actually does lead to issues later. We'll get there when we get there. Either way, notice the film is cold. I don't mean literally cold. I mean, it's it's a lot of blues, cold, uh, cold spectrum. It's cold. It's dark. And it's raiding. And the film goes nice and quiet. And the tension really starts to peak up a little bit. Now, a point that is made here, and this is a good point, is that the team is actually taking this seriously. They're pairing up. They're scanning consistently as they go, sweeping their corners, and making sure to check everything. It is Gorman who makes the first mistake here. Area secured. Now, Ripley kind of rolls her eyes at this, but she can't really override him at this point, and it might just sound like paranoid. But that is the first mistake he says, area secured. I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo, and I am on the armchair here, but what? Again, in the film, this is clearly once in one, I think we're up to four things now. That's to show this gentleman's inexperience, so that does make sense. So the area is secured, but they have a last stand with no bodies. And that's supposed to kind of make you go, oh, God. And the tension finally just kind of keeps going up and up and up as we finally detect something on the motion sensors. And we're trying to figure out what's going on, and it's newt. This is finally the first breather. Again, the tension has been slowly escalating since the beginning of the film, really, since since the fake-out. And now it's like, okay. Newt. Now, naturally, Ripley immediately starts mama-bearing. Um, this is a good time to mention Amanda. Now, Amanda was ejected entirely, except in the deleted scenes. Amanda was Ripley's daughter, who has since grown old and died of old age, effectively. She died of cancer, but, you know, she was 67, I want to say. I actually have to admit, I feel pretty bad about that, because Amanda was pretty cool. After all, I played as her in Alien Isolation. Good game, by the way. I highly recommend it. 
Anywho, <clears throat> so Ripley starts mama bearing. And while this is important for the theme, the motherhood theme, which is arguably the biggest theme of the entire film, it's also important to put a face on things. Everyone knows the Stalin quote about statistics, but the harsh truth is that that is really how human psychology tends to work. We can look at a number, we can look at a figure, and we can process that as an abstract. But until it's made personal, until it's given a face, it's a lot harder to process. Now, there are many ways to do that. You don't literally need a human being's face. We don't need the Borg Queen, for example. But seeing one individual who is suffering because of the actions of the company or more accurately, Burke, does help put a little bit more perspective on what has happened to these poor people. I have to admit, I had a hard time re-watching this. Maybe it's because this is the first time I've watched this film since my niece was born. I mean, that's, that's a big gap of time, but you get the point. It is. And the thought of her having to go through what she had to have gone through here as the others were taken and... Yeah, that, oh, that is so horrific. And it really helps sell just how bad Wayland yutani is. But again, we'll come back to that later. So, this then leads to our second misdirect with regards to Bishop. He is entranced by the facehugger. Oh, this thing is so beautiful and amazing. And we're totally getting the vibe that he's going to betray us again. They keep hitting this point. Burke. This... <laughs> uh... So, what happens after this is probably the most overt example of how incredibly inexperienced Lieutenant Gormand is. So, Ripley's like, wait, they're under the vents, right? They need, to, they need to not shoot. What? And then Burke's like, oh yeah, she's actually totally right. What? No, look, it's like this. Three separate times in a row, they have to explain to this idiot that shooting around highly explosive things equals bad. <laughs> now, that's the first problem. The second problem, and this is when Gorman makes his second major mistake, is he orders them to give up their ammo without explaining why. Now, before anyone who out there who is you know, current or ex-military jumps down my throat, I know that in a combat situation, you're supposed to just take the orders as read and follow them. I get that. When you're, when you're in the crisis moment, you don't question. It's after you question, right? I get that. I do. But in my experience and observation of human nature, both in real life and in fiction, there's a necessary component to that happening. And it's not training, it's trust. You know, if, I guarantee you that if... Uh, oh my god, I can't think of his name. Al Matthews' character. If he had made that call, they would have just been like, yeah, okay. Because they have that trust in him that he's making the right call. They don't have that trust in Gorman. None of them do. So they're just like rolling their eyes at it. And this is why Vasquez and Drake decide to hold on to their rounds. And thankfully don't set off a thermonuclear detonation. Although, I'm going to go and jump ahead in the film here really quick. You know how later they see the venting? A scene I'll talk about later. And there's a slow escalation of the overload. It has been suggested that all of that happened because they did manage to hit one or two things during the firefight. And while it wasn't enough to set off everything, everything, it was enough to start destabilizing the vent protocol, which meant the emergency venting was no longer, was, was first of all happening at all, but second of all was no longer keeping up, which eventually leads to the detonation. And all of this happens because Lieutenant Gorman 
A, is not a good enough leader of people, and B, doesn't explain himself. This is such a rookie move. I know, he doesn't have to, like I just said. But if he had explained himself, there's a chance that might not have happened. And there's a chance the explosion might not have happened. Now, who knows, really? It is, of course, very debatable. But it is, once again, indicative of just how pathetic this guy really is. This then leads to, uh, well, the explanation and showcasing of how xenomorphs mass-produce. So, that's cool. <laughs> Ripley's face. Sigourney Weaver's a great actress, and she nailed it in Alien. She nails it here. Um, she does a lot of facial acting, and her expression as she's watching this happen, because she knows. The moment she recognizes what she's looking at, is she just goes on lockdown and can't tear her face away until it finally actually burst out, at which point she finally clenches her eyes and, and, and cringes away from it. It's such a personal, dare I say, intimate wound to her because of how much she is still suffering from this, because of how much this still hurts her at so many levels. Having to witness that is horrific, and again, Sigourney Weaver shows all of that on her face without a single line of dialogue. This is a good time to mention that there are 25 iterations of the F-word in this film. 18 of them are said by Hudson. Little factoid to break the ice there. So, a lot of people die. I think four people die in quick succession. And they have just, they completely are in over their heads and have no idea how to deal with it. And, well, hold up. Maybe it's just because I literally just watched Predator, but I was watching the tactics on display here and the actual coordination. And, well, what I saw was a decent team who knows each other, who knows how to coordinate, but had several problems in their implementation. Problem number one, bad communication. Lack of information led to this problem. This leads to problem number two, bad coordination. They weren't actually working as a team. And this also leads to problem number three, bad command. Let me be clear. I lay the overwhelming majority of this failure squarely on Gorman's shoulders. This was a failure from the top down. The fact that anyone survived at all is a testament to how decently this team does operate as a team in the absence of coordination, command, and communication. Ripley takes control. By the way, you notice even Burke backs her on this. Interesting little side point. And makes a hole and forces them out. The other reason I wanted to compare and contrast this to Predator is because the first interaction with the camp showed how, how, how high tier the team was, how they were the best, how they could do what nobody else could. This then helped to establish how outclassed they were, but why they were able to keep up with something that outclassed them. They were a, a tier down in the weight class, but good enough to punch up. Here we, we see a similar uh, concept expressed completely differently. Here, these are not exactly the best. They are barely coordinated and barely know what they're doing. They are able to actually cause damage and injury to their enemies, but in the end, all they manage is a fighting retreat. And even that costs them dearly, including the use of their vehicle, and more importantly, the lives of however many people left behind. I think it's three, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Hang on. One, two, three. Yeah, I think three people died here. It's three or four. So, naturally, they run over a Zeno on their way back, and the transaxle breaks. 
Huh. I wonder if that's related. First thing she does as soon as she stops. You okay, Newt? First thing. Immediate. No hesitation. Nice little character point. Now, this is a good time to mention that Hicks does something, too, throughout this film. I don't think I ever really noticed before how much he papa bears about Newt. He obviously, the protective fatherly instinct is just right on display. He's also the one who tries to reach out to her and take care of her multiple times. The only other person who does that is Hudson, of all people. In fact, if you remember, during the big tension scene, she specifically calls out for Hudson, and he is the one who saves her. Tiny little tidbit there. Anyways. So, they decide, let's nuke the side from orbit. Now, this is an important scene for two reasons. First of all, Ripley is absolutely right. Cutting the losses and wiping this off the face of the Earth when you are this outgunned, this outnumbered against an enemy that is now active and might be expanding even as they speak is the kind of thing that they absolutely should do. It is also worth noting that from a personal perspective that is the right call. Because, you know, it would be the closer that she so desperately needs. So, the right call, the correct call. What could screw it up? One xenomorph got on the dropship earlier. That's probably the single most horrifying thing in the whole film, in my opinion. No joke. Without notice, without warning, without doing anything, a xenomorph just snuck on board the dropship and just hung out there until, you know, they decided to come back down. Now let's call this what this is. This is plot convenience. This is a form of consequence writing, which I've talked about before. We need to prevent the obvious solution from happening too quickly, so we need to prevent them from being able to implement it. That means stranding them on the planet. Okay. So the dropship is taken out. It's still kind of messed up when you think about it. Either way. This then leads to... Ripley, so Hudson starts to freak out. This is all, this is, I believe, the second time Ripley takes command, and, excuse me, third time Ripley takes command, and once again shows that she's good at it. Not only does she try to calm Hudson down, but she does so in what I would consider to be one of the best ways possible. Busy work. When you have a soldier, or anyone really, who's freaking out over anything, really, you give them something to do. Something relatively mundane, something not super high tier, but something that they know, and something that they're good at, and you keep them occupied. Funnily enough, Hudson is their mapping expert. He was the, the, the scanner dude. You remember that earlier? So setting him on the maps, finding this information, finding the vents, keeps his mind occupied, keeps him focused, keeps him from panicking and freaking out. I like how, despite being the comedic character, he's still you know not that terrible. So this then leads to the scene where they start to process and figure out something that the audience has probably already been asking. Where the heck do the eggs come from? Now, Alien, I already talked about this in the Alien Rumination. The original idea was that the, the people would be taken and then converted into the eggs, which is gross and terrible and something that I just consider to be non-canon. Especially since Aliens completely takes that idea and throws it completely out the window. There must be something laying the eggs, something we haven't seen before. In total truth, I think we've got... Let's see, so we got drones, warriors, Praetorians, and Queen. I don't know if there's any other major casts or breeds other than those big four. But I do know that we've got those big four, and it's been debated if Praetorians or Warriors are present in this particular film. But to my knowledge, it is Warriors, but I've heard some people dispute that, so I'm going to presume Warriors until further information. Praetorians wouldn't be introduced until um, Alien Rogue, the comic book series, and would then later be popularized in the video games like AVP. Anyways... 
This, th- so I'm sorry, I actually skipped over a bit, but I wanted to talk about it here anyways. Earlier, when they're like, we need to nuke the side, Burke is like, whoa, we can't do that. What's funny is this kind of showcases why Burke is both a very effective villain and a completely ineffectual villain. He can only lie so long as the lie makes sense. He, so he's pushed against a wall and he's like, wait, 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 we can't nuke this place. This is super valuable. There's no way he can sell that argument. There is no way in which he can actually give that statement to these people under these circumstances. And he tries mightily, but we see how without the advantage of information and something to fall back on, he just lies straight up to their face and fails miserably at it. This leads to his villainy number two. (laughs) Number two villainy is when he uh, decides, oh, we need to keep the facehuggers so we can send them back. So he can make lots of money. And again, there's no way he can sell this lie. You'll notice he doesn't lie to Ripley. He told, tells her flat out and to her face, we're gonna bring the, we're gonna bring the facehuggers over. It's gonna be cool. You know, it'll be fine. Well, you, you keep quiet. I'll keep quiet. Nobody will know they're there. We'll make tons of money. We'll be set for life. No issues. And the funny thing is he doesn't have to lie, too. He flat out admits that he sent the people to check out the ship because he wanted exclusivity rights. If he had sent a big mission, if he'd sent troops down, then there would have been a big if for a kerfuffle. And he either would have looked like a fool if there's no ship, or he would have lost exclusive rights if there was. So obviously he's in the right here. This is pretty much when Burke has stopped being any level of a sympathetic character. Once again, Paul Reiser is an inspired choice here. Because at no point do we see even the tiniest glimmer of regret in him. Because he's not playing that type of character. He's just playing the kind of light, light-hearted, lovable dude who happens to be a mass-murdering psychopath. You know? It's, it's just kind of... Psychopath is the wrong term. But you know what I mean. Um, horrible human being! We'll just go with that. Or, or corporate suit, if you prefer. This doesn't count. It was a coat. <laughs> So, <clears throat> this is when we find out the plant is slowly overloading. This provides a ticking clock and a surprisingly mundane problem. I haven't really been commenting on this, but there's a lot of surprisingly mundane obstacles that face the crew as they're going through this film. And in this case, it's literally just, well, the ship's up there and it can handle remote, but we can't connect to it. We need a dish and we need the dish to be set up properly and this thing's fried and this thing's over there. Well, we can go grab this one and go interact with it, but that means having to go over there and interact with it with tons and tons of xenomorphs around, so that sucks. Bishop offers up his chance. I hope you're paying attention, because within the space of just a couple of minutes, Burke ousts himself as a horrifically evil human being, and Bishop starts to show how he is a better person. We see that the initial presentation of both was inaccurate, and both are now starting to cross streams and shift into each other's archetypes. So then, then Bishop has to go through that pipe, and oh my god, just thinking about it is actually freaking me out just a little bit. They show him down there a couple of times. Poor Lance Henriksen, I don't know how he did it, just crawling through. I don't have much of a claustrophobia thing, but I do have a bit of claustrophobia. It's one of the reasons I have such nice big open space around me. When I'm working, it helps me to stay calm and relaxed and helps my overall demeanor. Um, as opposed to like when I had the green screen here where I was much more contained because the green screen was like right here, right behind me. So I was kind of smacked in here in my, my little pod. And that always freaked me out just a little bit. The idea of being in this 
where the only thing I can do is shoulder movements. <sighs> For like 40 minutes, too. Oh, God. <laughs> Anyways, Hicks then shows Ripley how to fire, reload, and generally handle the M41A. Cool. And you'll notice the tempo has been really nice and low for almost this whole section. I think this is probably, uh, well, let's save the discussion about pacing. I have a better place to talk about it. Instead, let's talk about how Burke may be the most evil Wayland yutani person we ever meet. I'm, I'm being sincere here. Can, can you think of anyone who's worse? Ignoring all the crap he's done so far... This man now deliberately tries to have Ripley and Newt impregnate, I don't know how else to say it, with the frickin' facehugger, so that he can sneak them on board, and then he'd sabotage the other pods, so he's the only one who gets through alive. And It's actually a surprisingly decent plan, too. He's not an idiot. It's just, that is, wow, dude! I am astonished they didn't kill Burke on the spot when they discovered it. I really am. You'll notice he he can't even come up with a lie here. He doesn't even try. He's just uh, uh, uh. and what's funny is Hicks pull picks him up to shoot him. No, no offense. And uh, then the power goes out, which is probably so that they don't shoot him. Thing though, Ripley says no. He's got to go back. Why? They have oceans of evidence in terms of both interviews, but more importantly, documented footage and other, you know, digital evidence of just how much horrible stuff has been going on here, including Burke's own stuff. Why do they need him alive? What possible... Re I'm legitimately asking, if anybody out there, I always like to have at least one question in these ruminations. Why do you think Ripley wanted to leave Burke alive? What possible reason was that there for that? I actually can't come up with one unless they just wanted another corroborating point. Or it's one of those the good guys shouldn't kill moments, which I, we, we all know my thoughts on that. Anyways, it's time for the good guys to go kill a whole bunch of things. <laughs> it's okay. One of the drones ends up killing Burke anyways, after Burke once again tries to get them killed. But of course he does. They've just flat out stated they're going to kill slash ruin his life, so why would he... At this point, why not, right? <sighs> They lose Hudson, they lose Vasquez, and they lose Gorman. I do kind of like how Gorman and Vasquez went out together with the grenade. That was kind of a nice moment, actually. Um, so, that's horrifying. Hicks, Ripley, Newt, Bishop. That's all they got left. And a tracker. Now, I mentioned horrifying stuff. I kind of lied. Um, there's one other moment. There's actually two moments in this film that are probably the most horrifying moments to me. The first is a quiet moment. Now, I kind of skipped over it earlier because I wanted to talk about it here. When the facehuggers are released in the room and the room is sealed and he turns off the camera. The facehuggers, we know, are strong. They're very physically strong. It takes both of her arms and full tilt effort to keep it away. And it's only, it's only going to succeed temporarily. It will outlast her, right? It's like a starfish. It will eventually pry open that clam, right? So she's trying to pull this thing back. And Newt's over there, and completely helpless, and in no way strong enough to restrain these things. And there's two facehuggers, just loose in, a, in an enclosed corridor with lots and lots of stuff in the way. I, I don't know how to explain it. That's horrifying. 
That is absolutely chilling. And every time I've seen this film, including the first time, I was just, oh, God. Mum, because I obviously saw this when I was relatively young, Mum had to actually, you know, just reach over in the chair and be like, it's okay. It's okay. And just hold me during this scene because of how much this was getting to me. I'm just like, oh, my God. Because I understood. This is kind of the Jaws thing in its own way. Because we've established what facehuggers are and can do, We've established just how terrifying the situation is. And now we put it into a very enclosed space with lots of stuff in the way and two people with no weapons and no guns and no help. Yikes. Thankfully, Ripley is smart and really good at thinking on her feet. So she sets off the fire alarm, manages to get him in. I love how Hicks is just right in and then Hudson manages to save Newt. It's actually a good rescue scene. But that is then followed relatively shortly thereafter by the other really horrifying thing. No, not the pipe, all that. That's separate. Real horror is, oh, God, things are bad. Wait, wait, no. No, it's okay. Things are okay. And and you just got to have enough moment. It's called the hope spot. You need enough moment for the relief to start overwhelming you, to start defusing that tension before, nope, it's actually worse than you thought. That's horror right there. I've experienced that in real life, and it sucks. And the way Ripley goes to rescue Newt, and they manage to get to her, and they find her, and they, they smack, fry open the freaking grating and smash through. Funny little side note, those grates were actually left over from the first film. Go figure. Smashes through the grate, tries to get Newt out. Nope. This is the first time Ripley actually loses it in the whole film, and I don't blame her at all. That is just such a horrifying, horrific moment. You'll notice Hicks is just as bothered by this, but far more trained. This is when he really gets to Papa Bear. He's like, no, we got to deal with this, and we got to deal with this right now. We need to get out, we need to get to the ship, and then we need to come back and rescue her. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> oh. Now, be real with me for just one second. You don't have to answer in the comments. You can just answer in your head or out loud or however you'd like to. Could you leave her behind? Not would you. Could you? Would you be capable of leaving that poor girl behind, either to the aliens or to the nuclear explosion or both? Because I couldn't. Even if I actually knew there was no chance of survival, I couldn't leave her to die alone. It is not within me. So... Forgive me for being a little emotional because the the finale and climax of this film just started punching me right in the heart. As I'm just like, oh God. And I know how it's going to end. I've seen this film. It's just... And, well... She goes down. Give me a second here. There's a general absence of enemies in this part of the film. There are, I think, a grand total of three... Three or four drones, actually warriors, excuse me, that she fights. And then, of course, there's the queen. And that makes sense. They don't have that many numbers. They only had, what, 173 colonists to work with? And they've been killing aliens left and right. So it does actually make sense that their numbers would be reduced, even this close to the hive. But she goes down. She finds the watch, freaks out, moment of despair, hears the scream, instantly and without hesitation, jumps up to go rescue her, shoots the pod, shoots the two aliens there, gets nude out. And as they're escaping, the music dies out, and she realizes she's walking through a sea of eggs. And she slowly, and the camera slowly pans over until we finally, 
for the first time, see the queen. Let's talk about pacing. Like I said, I mapped this out. I should have got a diagram or something like this. The film starts, and there's this... It starts in a low beat, and it kind of builds up very quickly to the first fake-out. And then it just plummets. What happens then is the long incline I mentioned, which covers a huge chunk of the film. It's this nice, big, long section of nonstop incline as they, you know, they get to the ship and they find the mission. They've lost and then they find Newt and then Newt. And upon finding Newt, there is just a plummet in tension and the pacing just goes right back down to low tier and low tempo. It stays there for quite some time until it ramps up suddenly into an action sequence, which actually lasts for quite a while. The action sequence then starts to ramp right back down again. Now, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. It ramps down, and it does this interesting thing. Most films don't do this. There's a continuous ramp down from the action moment, and it just kind of starts getting quieter and quieter and quieter until the facehugger moment, which is once again another straight spike up. The facehugger moment lasts here and, and is fairly high tension then plummets a little bit as they deal with that and does a little bit of a dip as they understand the situation they're in. And then what happens is probably the most interesting bit of pacing the whole film, and this is exactly uh, why I waited until this moment to talk about it. Because what happens after they successfully uh, deal with the facehuggers and have their little moment is the tension does nothing but slowly rise even higher than it has been the whole film, culminating in this scene. It does this non-stop incline until they're in the room and it's quiet. And it's a hold-the-breath moment as they're walking through the eggs and they turn and they see the alien queen right there. As I mentioned earlier, the alien queen was a miracle of production. It is astonishing how much they were able to accomplish with the limited feature, budget, time, and technology that they had at their disposal. Holy crap. And everyone's just... And then, there's a standoff. Brief little standoff here. This then leads to... uh, She decides to push the eggs back. Question. If the egg hadn't opened, do you think Ripley would have just left with Newt? Because I I do, personally. But I am curious what you think. But one way or the other, one of the eggs opens. And her response is, Really? And she even has this verb, non-verbal, physical, just, come on. Which then immediately leads to her unloading on the aliens, on the eggs, and on the queen. With everything she has, almost blowing her entire arsenal. This is the catharsis. Something she has been desperately seeking the entire film. She no longer needs to be tense. She no longer needs to be afraid. She has Newt. But screw them. And screw everything they did to her, and her crew, and her people, and her life, and her dreams. Screw them. And she just vents at them. And, once again, excellent praise to Sigourney Weaver for getting all of that across, just entirely in her body language, and in her non-vocalized snarling as she is unloading here. This is why I think this film succeeds so damned well. It's an action flick which is a horror flick, but it's a character piece. This film is the path of Ripley, Ellen Ripley, and her recovery from, reestablishment from, 
and and success striving from from nothing throughout the course of the entire film it's brilliant and it's beautiful and i love it so they get out i actually don't have much to say about the finale here we have another mundane problem the elevator won't come down quickly enough what's funny about this is she was in such a hurry to get the elevator down that she called down the other other elevator mundane problems so the other elevator come by no bishop betrayed them no, it's so terrible. This is one of the most obvious usages of reused music from the first film. We actually hear the climax music of when the Nostromo, or the Nostromo or whatever, was exploding, and she encounters the alien, while the plant is self-destructing, and she encounters the alien queen. It's, it's appropriate usage. Good editing salvages what otherwise was probably a huge issue. As usual, creative usage of limited resources and, and situation. Bishop, of course, has not betrayed them. Yay. Now get out. This then leads to a very brief, like the tension plummets, uh, you know, the explosion and the tension plummets again in the pacing. But it only stays there for just a couple, like not even a few minutes because they get out and then Bishop gets impaled. Real talk. First time I ever saw this, I was like, and I think I actually said this out loud and mom was like, shh. Because I was like, well, how did, how did it impregnate an android? Because that's what I assumed was happening. I'm curious if anybody else had the, the same initial, you know, automatic, wait, what? Reaction to seeing something chest burst through Bishop. Now, a couple little small tidbits. First of all, she shoves Nude away. First thing. No hesitation. Love that. Second of all, uh, Bishop is ripped in half. Poor Bishop. He did pretty good, too. Third thing, though. This is a funny one. When she gets out in the power loader and says one of the best lines in cinema history, <laughs> chills, by the way. She, she did that in one take. Sigourney Weaver, they were really low on time and budget and everything. And remember, I mentioned the queen was horrific to do. So they had only the time and resources to do one take. That was her one take. God, she nailed it. And of course, it's, it's the only time they tell what they've been showing the entire film. Her. Mama Bear Instincts and her motherhood thing for Newt. But anyways, you'll notice there's no music. There's the big, usual tension music, and then she comes out in the loader, and for the final battle, there's no music, and it works brilliantly. This is a perfect example of why the no music trope that I might... The no music lorium, excuse me, that I use is something that I use specifically when no music is badly done. Because the absence of music can be a very good narrative tool in gaming and in shows and in movies. Here, the absence of music perfectly suits this battle, and it really works well for the final boss fight. And it's a giant mech fighting an alien queen. What more do you want from me? Then she opens the thing and somehow lives. And they get out, and they, they go home. And they get to live together and be happy forever, and nothing else bad ever happens to them. Right? Good. I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this absolute masterpiece of a film. I'm looking forward to, as always, your comments, and I will see you all next time.